Hello, my name is Luke Gross, and welcome to Rugga Matrix USA. Thanks, Luke. Luke Gross, America's line-out guru, joining us on Rugga Matrix USA, episode 008, Tall Timber. Hello, I'm your host, Juro Sen, joined shortly by my partner in crime, Bruce McLean, as we look at the line-out in depth, and also at Luke himself, an American legend, a veteran of the game. This is Rugger Matrix USA. Yes, hello and welcome to episode eight of Rugger Matrix USA. Juro Senior host, joined as usual by the irrepressible, the undeniable Bruce McLean in New York City. Bruce, top of the morning or oh, good day to you. Whatever you want to say. <laughs> Finally, out of the snow and the ice, it's about, I don't know, for you, three or four degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius for us about uh, 38, 40 degrees. But I'll tell you last, last week we were practicing in wind chills of negative Celsius, probably about negative 25. It was pretty nasty. It was, it was as savage as it gets. Everyone out working hard. Gotta like it. Lucky you've got that natural coating, Bruce, and uh, to help you see you through the winter. Oh, yeah, the woolly mammoth, 30 million years, can survive anything. Incidentally, Especially I, a big winter. I caught up with you and Mackenzie only yesterday, and uh, he's looking very trim, very, very trim. The Queensland uh, heat and humidity doing well for him, for the great coach that he is. Yeah, I can't say the same for myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into our very special guest, uh, Luke, as we heard in the uh, introduction, uh, let's just cover off a bit of noise uh, being created by the uh, story that Ted Hardy uh, published on on our site and uh, all in reference to uh, Tatham and uh, the Sevens. Well, I guess it's a pretty uh, unique idea in the world of sport. But, uh, Bruce, uh, we are working to actually speak to the man himself. Yeah, I think that it, it's, it's hard to uh, really have any comments that are serious and and ted has done a really good job putting those putting those stories out and putting them together but there's still a few put things that we would like to flesh out so we definitely would like to get bill tatham on our show to discuss what his plans are in terms of rugby and in terms of um of productions and and what he's going to do in sevens and collegiate and all that kind of stuff and and see how his deal was struck with usa rugby and all that kind of thing and and see what, what's on the horizon. So it should be very interesting times, and it would be awesome to get him on. So if anyone knows how to find them, we'd love to speak to him. <laughs> Track him down. Go forth and produce that Skype handle. Well, uh, we will pursue that in the coming weeks, and as usual, there's always plenty to talk about on the show. But uh, looking at the CV of our guest tonight, uh, Bruce, uh, just take us through it. Luke's, uh, Luke's an amazing uh, Contributor to the game, not just in the States, but uh, overseas as well. Uh, truly uh, impressive guest today. Yeah, Luke, Luke is, is exactly what we're looking for in American rugby. He had played basketball in Indiana State where Larry Bird played and uh, transferred out of there after having a bit of a, uh, bit of a lunatic coach and went to Marshall University and played for a couple of years there and was introduced to rugby through a friend of his at Marshall University. He played there, joined the Cincinnati Wolfhounds, and played with former life captain Jimmy Johnson, who went to Xavier, and was introduced there. And then, and then from there, he was on the national team in 1996, kind of fast-tracked, 
and he went to the London Harlequins and played with Keith Wood, played for Dick Best, the famed England coach, and went over to Italy for a few years, played in Rome and Rovigo. Then he relinked up in Europe with Dave Hodges over at Clinetley, where Hodges was a uh, was already entrenched in the side. Then he went to Rotherham, who was in the Premiership at the time, and there's a little bit of a story behind that and how they kind of were in the Premiership and got screwed their way out of it. Then he played over with Johnny Wilkinson at Newcastle and finished up his career with Doncaster in the uh, in the Division One competition in England. And basically, he's done it all, and he's got 62 caps for the United States. He was on the United States team in the 2007 World Cup, unfortunately was injured and was unable to play, but was there and provided a lot of leadership for the young players. And I think it would be uh, great to have Luke on right now and just talk to him about some of his experiences. And then we're going to get into the lineout segment of the show. That's we're going to talk about coaching lineouts with Luke, who is the lineout specialist for the United States. Well, Luke, welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, gentlemen. God, my head got really big there for a second. Can you talk some more? <laughs> well, lucky it's radio. Well, internet radio. Luke, uh, well, what a career. Uh, some great highlights. Uh, can you? Uh, did you ever think that you would have played so many times for the uh, for the states? Um, Sixty-two caps and all. Oh, n- not at all. You, you know, I. I it's it's been a whirlwind, and I'm a very very lucky individual. Um, just a little funny story about uh, Jack Clark, who was the national team coach when I first started playing, called me at work when I was in Cincinnati, and said, uh, uh, "Just Luke Gross." I said, uh, "Yes, it is. Can I help you?" And he said, uh, uh, "Yes, uh, this is uh, Jack Clark, national team coach. Uh, I was wondering if you want to fly out to LA and try out for the national team." I said, "Guys, leave me alone. I got too much work to do." And I hung up on him and uh, he called back and said, Luke, you hang up again and I won't call you back. So that's, that's how it all started, which (laughs) is a funny little thing. (laughs) So it all started there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the fact that uh, before we get into the coaching later on, which we're all looking forward to. In fact, it's the the most popular part of of what we do in Rugger Matrix and Rugger Matrix International, but let's look at it. Now you've, Spent a lot of time overseas, including a great stint in Italy. When I talked about your time playing with Keith Wood as well, but let's talk about the Italian experience uh, and, and what what sort of quality you 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 came across when you were there. Um, the, the first year I was there was in Rovigo, which is a small town who was all rugby. They didn't have a, a soccer team or a football team, um, and it was all rugby. It's about fifty miles south of Venice, so it was a beautiful part of the world. Uh, the quality of rugby wasn't the greatest, uh, but the boys, like like most Latin cultures, played with a lot of heart and desire to win. You know, and and I I think you can't fault the Italians or the French or the Spanish even for for that desire. You know, um, from there down to Rome for a couple of years, and living in one of the the most historic cities in the world was incredible. You know, um, we Rome always competed in um, uh, the Heineken Cup cup the two years I was there. And so we got to travel around Europe. You know, we were were a little bit of the whooping boys. You know, you'd go someplace and get your butt kicked because we just didn't have quite the professional attitude as some of the other European uh, teams. But, you know, like I said before, heart, heart always went a long way. The boys never gave up, and that's kind of what they were known for, I suppose. 
Hey, Luke, in, in our first show with Simon Hardy, he had mentioned uh, coaching over in Spain a little bit and how it seemed that they loved the chaos. They loved to be in a chaotic environment. They loved chaotic rugby. They loved, like, turnover ball, you know, playing from a kick, playing from kind of fractured, broken play. Was that how you saw it in Italy and as opposed to England where it's like we like to queue for things. We like everything organized. We like everything boom, yeah. boom, boom. We like it set up and structured. Is, did you find that, the difference between when you were at, at Harlequins playing for Dick Best and then going over to Italy, was, was that sort of what the experience was for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, if, if you've driven in a Latin culture, that's kind of how they are. They're just – it's all over the place, and they, they live for it. You know, they like that unpredictable. unpredictable. You know, that's definitely. Uh, when you were at Harlequins, you got to play with uh, Keith Wood. And did you play with Will Carling and, um, over there as well, or, did, or were you just, just after his time and just played with Wood? And, and Tom Billups also was there, and you could talk a little bit about uh, the relationship between Tom and Keith. Um, the first year I was there, Carling was still playing. Uh, he, he's a character and a half, a lovely, a lovely man. Uh, our, funny enough, our tight five was Jason Leonard, Keith Wood, Massimo Petita, myself, and Gareth Llewellyn, a Welshman. So five different positions, five different nationalities. You know, that just shows how uh, international uh, the Harlequin team is, or it was then. Um, but to go back to your thing about Tommy and Keith Wood, um, Keith had a lot of shoulder problems. Uh, it's just the way he played. He was such a big hooker. He was he was a big hooker before it was um, fashionable to have a big hooker on your team. And they used to call him the raging bull or the rhino, you know, just the way he ran the ball. So his shoulders were always messed up, and he'd had a couple surgeries, and he couldn't really throw the the ball very well in the lineout. And uh, Tom Billups uh, helped him with all his skills and throwing, and they were out there before training and after training. You know, just working on the basic fundamentals of throwing. And, and that's kind of what got Keith to the Lions. You know, just tremendous coach, Coach Billups. And uh, the athleticism of Keith Wood is, is fantastic. He, he could do everything, chip, kick, oh. you name it. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's incredible. Very quick for a bit, such a big man. You know, great ball handling skills. I mean, I can remember him, you know, coming out of a scrum, taking that first ball up or taking the second ball up after after the eight man and taking it up and then realigning on the wing for a couple phases that would come back to him to score the try in the corner, you know, or offload it to the wing to score the try in the corner. What did you Just, what did you learn from him? What did you learn from your other international posse there in the tight five? Uh, you know, I went over there so green. Uh, I didn't know. Here I was, you know, a 6'9", 270-pound uh, athlete who could run all day but didn't have a clue what he was doing. You know, and and people like Gareth and Glenn Llewellyn, you know, two Welsh brothers, took me under their wing and just said, "Look, watch your running lines. Watch this." It, it was it was uh, fast track. You know, rugby 101 for me. Yeah. You know, it was tremendous. Just a real tremendous honor to be there with people like that. And then you moved on and you played for Connetly, the Scarlets, and and Dave Hodges was pretty entrenched in the side at that time when, when you came, but you had said that there was a way that they ran, the coaches ran the program there that made it probably your most enjoyable professional environment to be in. Can you talk us through a bit of that? The, the coaches was a little different style that we're, than what we're used to here in America. The coaches gave us a guideline and the players ran practice pretty much. 
and it made us it made it our own you know it was our training it was our line outs it was our scrums you know and uh, not to say that one way's right to the other but that really worked well especially for me and it was such a such a neat such a neat experience and different way to coach you know and when you have people like uh uh Robbie McBride who played hooker then he was also a Welsh hooker and uh Scott Clinnell who was you know number eight uh, lines number eight who who knew rugby so well he said well boys you know it you coach it you know and it was just such a neat experience McBride, wasn't he also in the uh, strongman competition, the the international strongman competition as well, or am I or am I mixing people up? No, no, you're you're right. No, you're, and you're he, right. he he was a monster of a man. He uh, was probably about six foot six one, and about uh, I'd say about two sixty. You know, you know, at that size, he could still run all day. But he had hands like uh, sausages. You know, each finger was a sausage. He was just a monster. And he, yeah, he did the strongman's previous to it going professional, you know, rugby going professional. And yeah, he was, I don't know who, who's that uh, strongman. The, I think he's Czech or something like that. Who's been winning it the last couple of years, that big Czech guy. The big Czech guy. The big Czech guy. I'm um, going to think twice. I had sausages the other night, Bruce. So I don't know if I'm going to go there again. <laughs> yeah. What uh, kind of sausages? <laughs> straight up. Not chipolatas, boys. <laughs> so um, let's talk about three World Cup campaigns. What were they like? What was different about them as, uh, as the game changes so dramatically from year to year? Uh, the first one, the 99, uh, it was such an experience, you know, to be, we were based in Ireland and such a neat experience. Um, we, we struggled a little bit as a team. We didn't, we didn't quite win uh, the matches we should have won, um, you know, it, but n with leaving that out, it was such a neat experience. Um, then the 2003, the one in Australia was tremendous. You know, what an experience. The Australians threw a good show. Um, every every match was jam-packed, regardless who was playing. Um, we, we came away with a really decent win and earned a lot of respect in our other matches that we played. You know, it, at that stage, you know, when, when rugby went professional, a lot of American people thought that it would help close the gap between us and the rest of the world, you know, because maybe the U.S. would go professional and really help out and, but it's just opened up that gap even more. And in the 2003 World Cup, I think we, we got some respect back, just the way we played with such heart and attitude. Certainly did. Uh, remember it uh, quite vividly, uh, Luke, because um, paying close attention, I was part of Eddie Jones' management team as uh, we went through to the World Cup and almost got there. We, uh, we got to the final, gripping final, went to extra time. It was just... Uh, magnificent event and uh luke i don't know if you remember but john o'neill was is back in the chair but there was a conscious effort to ensure that it didn't matter who played uh which country uh was involved whether they were ranked well down the list that there would be a crowd and it's good to see that um, it made an impact on you oh it did they really ran the show well it was such a neat experience well speaking of uh Speaking of Juro's experience with Eddie Jones's setup in the 2003 World Cup, 
you also played for the Newcastle Falcons, who broke uh, Giro's heart and Ewan's <laughs> heart, and probably 16 million other hearts in Australia. And what was it like <laughs> playing with Johnny Wilkinson? What was his work ethic compared to what you saw in other players, and what made him him? Oh, tremendous! Absolutely tremendous work ethic. He was an incredible individual on and off the pitch. You know, uh, we, we would arrive in the morning for training and weights and all that. And Johnny would be out doing his kicking or his normal routine and then come out, you know, he would come in and join us for weights. So he was already out there, you know, 40 minutes before we even arrived. And then at the end of the day, you know, he was still on the pitch after we showered and we're, after we'd eaten, he's still out there kicking, you know, the, just absolute tremendous. And, and it wasn't just his kicking, you know, his leadership skills on and off the pitch. Um, he had a thing called the 24 hour camera. And that is every time, everything he does, someone's watching. So it was all geared towards rugby. Everything he did, everything he put in his body, everything he read, everything, you know, when he slept, it was all towards rugby and that 24 hour camera where someone was watching, you know, just, uh, just tremendous, absolute tremendous athlete. Um, it was a shame when I was there, he was injured quite a lot um, for his size and the way he threw his body around, you know, tackling people, you know, my size, like they were rag dolls. You know, it takes a toll on someone who's only, you know, six foot one and, and 200 pounds. You know. It's often talked about his kicking displays, but um, we all know that he he is a tremendous defender. Uh, did, did, did he amaze you with... In the fact that he had cut down guys you just mentioned, but did he pass on anything about his technique? Because it's, it's truly is, he's truly is one of the great defenders of the game. Oh, he, he used to say it's just dedication in the tackle. He would say, I, "I'm tackling you, 100 percent," and there's no there's no half-assing, one bit. It was just a full-on tackle, regardless of size. I mean, I've seen him hit Sheridan, and you know Sheridan's an absolute monster, and. Sheridan took a step back when he hit him. You know, just that that credible that incredible dedication to the tackle. He's like the Ronnie Lott of rugby. It's good stuff. <laughs> Can I ask you, Bruce, before you jump in there? Um, he's known as a bit of a recluse, uh, Luke. But uh, how did you find him as a teammate? Oh, very good teammate. He he is. He stays to himself a little bit. Um, but you know, he has to to a certain point. I mean, we would go out as a team sometimes. And have just a quiet one or two beers. And as soon as one person found out that he was in the bar, everybody knew. And then mm. we had to escort him out because they would be all over him. You know, uh, to see that level of uh, fans is pretty incredible. You know, I never experienced anything like that. Luke, I just wanted to ask you, when, when you first got the Holoquins in, say, in 96, what was the difference between the training sessions as, as professionalism just started to dawn and what it was when you retired in 2008 or even say 2004 or five with Newcastle and what, what, what changed? What, what, what was the thing that really changed the most about professionalism and how they ran the training sessions, the pace of them, the intensity of them, the intensity of, of the, meeting rooms and all that kind of thing from when you started and as to when you retired. When, uh, when I first arrived, um, uh, I had more professional experience than a lot of the players just because I was a collegiate basketball player, you know, and you knew, I knew how to eat. I knew how to lift weights. I knew how to manage time, you know, and on down where 
those guys just had professionals thrown thrown at them. You know, here's a contract. We're going to pay you this. You'd have to quit your job. You know, and they were like, well, wait a minute. I don't know how to do this. You know, this was a hobby that I've just made my livelihood, you know, which is quite difficult for some people. You know, and, and Tom Billups and myself were at the Harlequins, you know, we were the fittest and the strongest guys on the team for that first year, you know, which um, was pretty incredible, you know, saying some of the players that were there. Um, now, in in uh, 2004 or five, when we were in, uh, when I was in um, Newcastle, what a difference. Uh, you could see a huge difference in players, strength, uh, mentality, everything. And it, it was fully professional, you know. Uh, where the Quins were still training at night because some of the guys wouldn't give up their hundred plus thousand dollar jobs in the city, so we had to train at night. You know, Newcastle, everybody was a full time professional rugby player and started it in the morning. You know, with breakfast to weights and all that, all the way to dinner. You know, videos, team meetings, unit meetings, individual meetings. You know, so that they adopted the full professionalism in a, in a matter of ten years. Have you seen any change in the United States team from when you started in 96 to, and I know you didn't play in 2007 in the World Cup, but you were part of the team as, as a player and, and, a, and really a leader and a mentor for many of the guys. What changes did you see in terms of the United States or was there or was it pretty much the same because Clark coming from a, a football background and Billups coming from a football background and Duncan Hall having been you know, coached a little, you know, coached a bit of professional rugby over in, in Australia. Was there any change in the United States or did we just adopt some of the things that people were doing and, and kind of, were we always professional? Um, um, with uh, Peter Thornburg taking over in uh, 07 for the World Cup and stuff, um, he brought a little bit of an old school mentality, uh, but also that that dedication to the team. You know, not saying Billups or uh, Clark or even Duncan didn't have that. Um, they did, but um, Peter Thornburg put it on the players. You know, it's it's up to you guys to organize this. It's up to you. So kind of like we talked about Canetley and how how we, how we he made it our team, you know. And uh, I don't know if uh, you gentlemen thought we played well or not in that 2007 World Cup, but once again, you know, we earned respect. You go out, you know, our type five, was a resource manager, a teacher, a gym instructor, and two, uh, um, one uh, second rows were a rancher and a uh, roofer against the England team, who was fully professional team, you know, and, and we put on a good show. Uh, Mentality-wise, we were dedicated, we were hard, because these are things you can do, your dedication, your hard, hard physically and mentally, you know, and those were where we can compete where we can't actually compete with, you know, their ball handling skills or complicated moves or things like that because we're not a professional team. Well, before we move on to our, uh, our coaching segment where we're going to discuss the line out with, with uh, Luke, we have to do a commercial break and we are sponsored by the USA sevens and Juro, what do you got to do? You got to be there. <laughs> I'm going to be there. Luke, you're going to be there. I'll be there. <laughs> Luke's going to be there. USA 7s, everyone's going to be there, and it's worth going. There's going to be a huge collegiate tournament before that. There's a big Invitational 7s tournament during it. And then the big event is 
the International Sevens, and it's going to be played at the UNLV Stadium in Las Vegas. Definitely worth going. If you don't have your tickets yet, get online and get them. And we also have another sponsor, Scrumbot.com, S-C-R-U-M-B-O-T.com. And it was basically created for U.S. rugby clubs to have an easy way to provide high-quality, digitally printed, embroidered club apparel through an online resource. Basically, what they do is they build a free online store for the club so that you can increase your revenue and have online branded apparel sales. There's no cost to the participating clubs. Scrumbot handles everything, including store design and setup, product design. They secure credit card and pay- PayPal ordering, product purchase, printing, embroidery, shim- shipping, and customer service. All the clubs have to do is email their logo and tell us how they want the apparel designed. When the store is built to their approval, they go live and they link with the new fully stocked store on a team page with a link that says store. And at the end of the day, Scrumbot sends them a check for 20% of all sales that they do every quarter with a verified sales report. It's a great way to get your club apparel out there and create a new revenue source and visibility for the program. Right now, Scrumbot has about 230 stores up and running in the U.S. You can visit any of these club stores by going to scrumbot.com and click Shop by Club. And the reason they had done it is because the owner had played for a few clubs and wanted to buy apparel from uh, from his old clubs and was unable to do it. So it's a good way to make revenue and it's a good way to get your... Get your tracksuits, your hoodies, your T-shirts, your hats, warm-up, warm-ups, kit bags, tracksuits, anything that you want to buy. They'll set it up on scrumbot.com in your own store. So that's our new uh, new sponsor, and we're glad to have them aboard. Yes, welcome aboard, and what a great ad. I could just imagine you with the hand on the ear, ready to go with the announcing. But that's, that's a great deal. What a great idea. Fantastic. So make sure you visit them today. Well done, Bruce. Before we get into the uh, line-out coaching, I want to ask uh, just a couple of more questions uh, to, uh, to Luke about the World Cup. Because let's face it, that's the big show and uh, the USA will be in town in New Zealand in 2011. But given that um, you've been involved with those three campaigns, uh, Luke, can you see the USA taking a, another step, uh, earning more respectability than you did in uh, 03? Um, eventually, yes. Yeah, but until we our youth programs grow even more than what they're growing now, um, I can't see it happening. Obviously, battling for athletes against the pro sports is, yeah. is, is the number yeah. one issue. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, uh, kids, you know, crossover athletes like myself, Dan Lyle, Dave Hodges, uh, uh, they can only do so much. You know, you need to have a good base, especially for your decision makers, you know, your 10s, your 9s. Um, you, you you need to grow up playing rugby. And right now, it, it's one of the biggest growing parts of rugby in the U.S., but it just needs to be bigger than what it is now, even more so. You can always pick athletes, but um, but athletes aren't necessarily good footballers and, or vice versa. But you do need yeah. a footballer or a rugby player to play rugby, don't you? I know that sounds funny, yeah. but you can't just pick the best athletes to play. No, no. And, and in your career, like Keith Wood, let's look at Keith Wood. If you looked at him and you said, well, is he a great athlete? Well, he wasn't the greatest looking athlete, but gee, he was a great rugby player. Yeah, yep. And, uh, and that's, that's what it's all about. I mean, those sort of guys inspire, 
Inspire people who uh, may think that the game is beyond them and uh, not the right body shape, but that's the beauty of the game. Luke, you were involved in the uh, in the twenty setup and the and the eighteen and the high school American setup just recently, and you also had done a bit of work with Bill Leclerc over in in Washington. What are you seeing coming through? Are you seeing people coming through that can take that step up, or are you seeing it's just the same guys who were getting more intense coaching to, and you know we're going to get similar type of results do we have to up our ante athletically or are we getting decent players at the top that you would like to see that maybe translate through and i know this isn't the easiest question to answer politically yeah um i I, i'm a firm believer in just being honest and saying how it is and and if i insult anybody i'm very sorry i didn't mean it personally um and we we have quite a good group of players coming through but we need more athletes that have played rugby. You know, that, that's what it comes down to. Um, we, if you look at a football team, American football team, how many of those high school players on American football team are going to go to college? And then it, you look at that again, how many of those college players are going to go professional? Those numbers are very, very limited, nil. You know, what, 1%, I think, out of college goes pro? If we can get just out of high school, get some of those boys to cross over and play both sports just so they know rugby, you know, they're introduced to it, you know, and let's say they go on to college and play for their college rugby. That's great. And if they go on to college and play football, that's great because they get their school paid for. And then those guys don't go professional, but they can come back down to play rugby again. You know, that's what we need. Let's just get them introduced to it. You know? Next week, we're going to have Scott Lawrence on the show. And, and, and I know that you've been working with him on, on, um, putting a video thing together for coaches to send to their players and for, and it's a resource for coaches to check and see what you guys are doing. Because one of the things that Scott's concerned about is, yeah, we get them for a week, but, and they're doing well and they're practicing hard, but what are they doing the other 51 weeks of the year? And what's happening in those other 51 weeks of the year, Matt Sherman alluded to this as well, that if that's not, done right then we got a problem because we're never we're kind of spinning our wheels taking one step forward two steps back yeah and at our camp at our camp, at our camp a lot of it is uh going back and going back over the same stuff i mean i you only have a limited time to do lineouts, you know and if you got to keep reintroducing the lift to these guys because they forgot where you coached them uh, you know three months ago you know you don't get anything done well, Luke, let's, let's, why, don't we get in, why don't we get ourselves into the line out a little bit and, and let's discuss the first thing, the lift, the lift and the jump. How do you coach that? How do you put it together to make an explosive, powerful lift? Like I talk to my team a lot about we're creating a skyscraper, not a pyramid, meaning that the lifters are having their hands out in front of them instead of up above their head and that we're creating – we want to shoot him up like an arrow, not like a hot air balloon where he's like, you know, you really, what are you guys doing in, in that, in that world to, uh, to fix that? And, and what are the, what are the key factors that you find in terms of the line out lift and jump? I, I always, I start with my lifters on, in their own groups and my jumpers in their own groups. Now, I have the philosophy that all jumpers are also lifters, you know, Sorry to say that not all lifters are jumpers, though, huh? <laughs> um, 
So you just work on basic footwork movement. That's it to start with. Um, lifters coming together, belly to belly, hands to hand, and pushing up. So we, we can help eliminate some of that A-framing. Um, jumpers uh, jumping quickly, you know, uh, and moving straight up with you know tightened buttocks, toes pointed to the ground, moving through the core, not through the legs, you know, to help to help their lifters in a good lift. And then then you slowly put it together as just half lifts, you know, you have them facing each other with their hands on or pre-binding and just do a little half lift, you know, the waist of the jumper up to the lifter's heads and right back down, just kind of a swinging motion, you know, not holding it up at all. And that, that just helps to promote them to start stepping in towards each other, the lifters, you know, because that's what ultimately what, what you want. When you get the A-frame in, 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 it's because they're they're lifting um, and not moving towards, you know, so they'll, they'll keep their feet back and rely on upper body strength opposed to leg strength. And what do you and when you take the jumpers alone by themselves to get them to jump straight up, what types of things are you doing with them? Are they just going from the ground? Are you taking them off a little bit of a, a height to go down and then go back up? Are you um are you weighting them down with a, a like a weight vest or something? Anything or are you just just getting them through the motion, the footwork of actual jumping? And can you talk us through the basic footwork of jumping? I know um, it's it's difficult to do on, yeah, it's a on little radio. Difficult, but yeah, we'll, we'll try this. We'll try this. Um, as far as weight belts and all that go, um, for training on the pitch, no, definitely not. Um, in the gym for plyos and all that, uh, we recommend our jumpers to do some plyos. And uh, if they do a set of squats, they step off to the side and do jumps, you know, straight up, maybe five jumps for each set, just to help relate that uh, power to explosive strength and movement, you know. Um, as far as technique, if, if it's a straight on jumper, if he's facing the hooker, he'll have his inside foot or the foot closest to the tunnel, a little bit forward and, and have that nice on your toes, kind of an explosive kind of movement, bringing your feet together and jumping straight up. Um, you remember the, the coaches that used to say, keep your hands out of the tunnel. And uh, this is something I, I really think is important keep your hands out of the tunnel a little bit. Cause if you come against a cagey old guy, who's going to grab that arm, you know, so they keep those hands out just a little bit. Um, so as they bring their feet forward, uh, their back foot forward to the front foot, and it's an explosive two footed jump straight up. You know, just nice and easy. That's it's simple. Very simple. Now, if they move across the ground, say they're moving backwards, um, they need to stay low in their movement because if they stand up to move, it takes more time. So you stay low in that crouched position, moving backwards two or three steps, and then they have to get set. They don't want to jump on the move because it doesn't promote a good lift. So as they're moving backwards to get set, they bring legs together and then explode straight up once again. Who's your poster Who's boy your then, poster boy, uh, then? Uh, if you're showing videos to your players? Uh, I'm an example of, of the perfect execution in the world game. Um, we'll, we'll stick with a U.S. player just to make it simple. Yep. Um, well, I know that, I know that Hodges really likes Van de Geese and I really yeah, like Van, Van de Geese and, and, and I, yeah. and I also like the way, uh, I also like the way Clever jumps actually. I think Clever's an outstanding jumper and I, I think he probably can be used a bit more as a jumper, but then again, you lose him in, uh, in that first contact area, but he is quite good at, at, at that as well. Luke, yeah, Van, Van der Geesen is the one I like. He he moves yeah. really well across the ground. I'm not saying 
that uh, Todd doesn't, but uh, Vandergeesen moves very well across the ground. He sets himself quickly and straight up. And if you, if you ever watch him, just watch how he gets his feet together so quickly and, and, and winds up. Luke, what's your philosophy on the speed of the line-out? And um, generally, are you trying to get it over and done with quickly, or will you settle until you get it right? No, I, uh, you, are you talking about training or in a game? No, in a game. In a game, speed, all about speed. If you get there and they're not set, call for the ball, get it in as mm. quick as possible. No, no, no sense pissing about, just in and up. Mm. Because it, it, can be, it can be a wasted opportunity if they're mucking around and you've got that throw. You see it so often, even at the um, international level. Yeah, and it's frustrating. Why put more pressure on yourself? If the defense is ready, it puts so much pressure on your hookers. Mm, agreed. You can get there and be ready. That mentality is, I'm there and I'm ready, let's go. And while I'm talking about that, uh, front of the back, when teams struggle, when, when the, it's a bit like, look, you've got the yips today in putting, but if you're, if you're struggling a bit with your line-out thrower, uh, what's the instruction from the coach's box? Are you saying, let's just go to the front, secure that early, easy ball and get on with it? Or do you keep trying to you know, go for the better play, uh, to play off and go to the back? Well, you've got to win the ball first and foremost, don't you? Yeah. And if your hooker can't hit that position, then you, you've got to go where he can hit. In saying that, uh, your hookers need to train like they play. How often does a hooker throw the ball when he's not fatigued? Mm. Never in a game. So if they train the throwing in fitness sessions and stuff like that, it's the best. It's the best way. It promotes that uh, in a game too. You know. Do you do you specifically train for the replacement hooker being thrust into the fray? Because that that's probably one of the more difficult things in the game. That uh, you make a replacement and then. You may not plan it that way. The first thing your hooker has to do is hit the target. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult thing, but that's where you train uh, like you play. So in a, in a training session, if your hookers, say you do five sprints with your fitness and then uh, you throw five, five lineouts, switch your, your backup hooker in there too. Make mm. him throw while he's fatigued. You know, and, and give the boys bonus points. Say if they, they hit three out of five, um, you know, you add two two sprints. If they hit five out of five, you take one away, you know. So it, it's make it a little game for them. Bruce, this is like we talked with Bill Millard, who's a very clever coach, but was very keen to to implement game reality in, in training. Well, it's critical that you, you implement game reality in training. The... The, if you don't do it that way and everything is compartmentalized, then there's no reality as to what's going on. And players do need to be able to operate and be able to think clearly when they're under the pressure and the fatigue of the game. And, and the way you do that is to train them in, in ways that are a little bit chaotic. And you can't just go and say there's going to be we're going to do 20 line outs and then we're going to do 20 scrums. We're going to, you know, you got to kind of mix and match it a little bit. So that it gets to a little bit of the reality of going through their patterns and understanding what they have to do off of certain situations. And I just wanted to get back to Luke in, in one thing. Well, you had the jumper going straight up and I, and I, that that's critical in the lifters. Now, what about the use of momentum? Cause I think that using the momentum of the jumper, what happens is that guys grip on the guys too early and try to lift them in the air. 
when in fact you're just kind of using his momentum and propelling him into the air, and that's what gives you the speed. That gives you the arrow effect. The hot air balloon comes from when you get him and it's too early and you're kind of forcing it up there. And how do you train to make to make that transition loop into uh, getting a really powerful lift? And do you have the rear lifter give him a shot, kind of almost throw him into the air? You know, at different levels, you can do that. But starting out at the high school level and stuff, you want to keep him, you know, within the back lifter's hands. Um, you'll see the national team as the the lifters as the jumper is going in the air he leaves the hands of the back lifter and the back lifter will have to re reorganize his hands back on the thighs or the hamstrings excuse me the hamstrings of the jumper now ideally that's where we'd like to get to but uh like i said high school you got to go easy with it take it go nice and slow so everybody gets strong enough to be able to do that and what progressions do you use to get them there because the idea is we have to get them there so, yeah, and, and there exactly. are some high school kids who can do it. There's some who can't. And, 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 you know, I see it at, at Xavier high school all the time. Some kids just don't have the ability or the core stability or, or the leg and hip strength to be able to execute that, but others do. And, you know, you have to kind of, you can't coach to the lowest common denominator. You got to kind of try to coach to the highest common denominator as often as you can while bringing the lowest common denominator up. What 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 would pro your progression be? As you know, you started, you did your half lifts. What's your progression through? Really, say starting in the basics and then going in the international level. If you were just going to progress through lifting and jumping, and and just getting the technique of that down. Well, to start with, you know, your lifters are pre your are pre binding on shorts, you know, and just lifting that way, to where they should be able to get their hands fully extended using their legs. Uh, are their arms fully extended using their legs and then to progress on to the front lifter on the thighs and the back lifter uh, you lifting with open hands uh, using the glutes up to you know where that gets really comfortable where they can put them up and hold them up there to where the next level is the national team level where it is leaving the back lifters hands and him readjusting down on the hamstrings you know but there's a there's a lot of little bits and pieces in between, you know, technique, strength, you know, in the gym, core strength. Um, you know, it's quite hard to explain it all on the radio, but uh, it, it's a, it's a big progression, you know, especially from lifting on the from lifting on the shorts pre-binding to lifting on the legs for that front lifter. From the physical aspects to the mental ones, Luke, some of the yeah. great line-out players are great uh, um, tacticians and whether it's line out defense or it's line out attack you really need a sharp operator in there and uh, it can make all the difference between a, a, a good line out and a great line out or a poor line out and uh, you can see someone like Victor Matfield very smart character and uh, it's not just his physical prowess but it's his tactics that play a big part what do you look for when you pick your, your line out tactician uh, in, in the you're, smarts department, you're, um, you mean your decision maker? Yeah, the the yeah. decision maker, the man who makes it happen right. in the lineup, that makes all the calls. You you look for someone that knows his teammates, who uh, uh, knows his opposition. Because, but I mean, you might have to fill him in on the opposition. You know, he has to be able to calculate all the decisions. You know, environmental, 
uh, opposition, his teammates, who's on, who's off, who's fatigued, who's injured. Maybe someone just got a knock in the head. They don't really know where they are at this second, you know. Mm. So there's a lot of decisions make to make. So generally you would go for, you know, your, your brightest boy in the pitch, you know, the, the one that um, can make decisions under pressure, you know. Mm. Um, a lot of times teams will have hookers making their calls, um, now, if that's the right guy for the job, then so be it. But a lot of times your hooker can't see who's open because he only has one perspective. He has the long view of the line out and they can't, he can't quite see what defenders are where, where I, I like, I prefer someone towards the back of the line out, maybe one of my back row making that decision. How do you, um, how do you coach the breakout patterns? Like who's going to take first contact? when you have a line out, you, you want a line out ball, you come off the top, who's taking first contact or, and then also when you have a line out mall and it starts to drive, how do you deal with who's going to be responsible for hitting first contact and who's going to be responsible for coming up in second phase? Um, for, for off the top line out, uh, the non-lifting pod and, and, so I, I would send, let's say it goes to that uh, back pod of um, five, six, and eight is lifting. You know, so seven will be the first one there and maybe two or three others. So four and three, maybe one, you know, but I would keep five, six, eight, and two out for the next phase. Um, as far as the mall goes, it depends on what part of the pitch you're mauling in. If you're mauling in midfield, I would keep... Uh, one of my ball winners out, my seven. I would keep my seven out, and he would be the first there. And maybe the guy who on the back of the mall that has the ball, um, they're definitely in that first breakdown. What about the contestability, about the contestability of the line-out in recent line years? Out. I was working with Rob McQueen in about 2001, and uh, he produced a, a video that uh, he, he wanted to show that even though that uh, distances have been spread. There's a lot of bridging of the breakdown, but in the line-out, the uh, distance was, was reasonably um, large compared to what it is now uh, in the adjudication of the game. But uh, he wanted to prove there was still contestability. As we've seen, everything's sort of closed up. It's tightened up since then. But have you seen evolutions in, 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 in uh, how the, how the line-out has developed since, uh, well, since jumping and uh, since it's gone pro? Oh, definitely. I, I can remember my first stint at the Harlequins. You know, we had these elaborate movements where, you know, I'd fake back and then the back lifter would come back <laughs> around, you know, the triple Lindsay loop. And now it's all about speed. You know, you're there, you're up and it's gone. Mm. You know, and, and there's not much movement at all. You're throwing where the defense is not because all your jumpers are lifters also, you know. What about you? Luke, what about you? Sorry, I was going to say... What about line-out defense? It's, uh, it's a critical part of the game, but uh, is your preference to have your tactician <clears throat> in attack and defense different? Um, no. No, generally they're, they're the, the guy that's pretty clicked on. So you, you want to have him making the, decision, the decisions defensively also. Um, you know, and I, I'm a firm believer good things happen when you get def defensive players in the air. Mm. You know, it puts pressure on hookers. You know, even if you don't steal the ball back, but you create non-quality ball for the offense, you've won. You know? Yep. Or you get the not straight throw. You get the hooker thinking a bit. Um, yeah. And then, and then there's the then there's the other part. You 
shut off their drive if they're a driving team and you and if you can't compete with them in the line out you maybe you, you compete with them on the floor and while they have a bunch of guys in the air working on the ball you dominate first contact and really try to make a make a scrap of it there and see if you can get your defense line set and create more scrap as it goes forward if you yeah. if you knock them backward that way i just want to talk about a couple little things about calls like a line out call where you would have you know, maybe in in a, in a high school team, you may just go in and you have your call and you go and you throw the ball to where you're going to throw it. And, you know, for newbies and then possibly you build it and you may have a call that has a check. And then also, you, as, as you said, um, a shotgun call where you're open, bam, you have a call yeah. that just everybody knows, bam, whoop, and we're going to you right away. And, or any of any of the jumpers in the line out really but how, what would what would a what would a progressions in say a line out call that when when as you got older in the premiership versus when you were younger in the premiership or what you did at Clinetley and versus what you did with the eagles and you know that kind of thing how did you do your checkoffs how did did you have any um did you have any options off your lineouts if you made a call and you were kind of going to go into traffic? Were you able to were you able to check out at them as you were going, or was it just kind of throw and go? Yeah, it was. You know, we had some pretty complicated calls uh, as far as when we first went professional in my first year at the Quins, and as it progressed, they got simpler and simpler. Um, I believe it's because hookers got better because it became a professional sport, and also lifting got better. You know, speed of the lift and everything, so it was harder for the defense to compete. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer myself that simplicity, um, the All-American, Collegiate All-Americans went to South Africa this summer. And um, at the lineouts, that was one place we competed quite well against their Collegiate All-Americans or all South Africans. Um, and it was very simple. We had the delivery mechanism, which is off the top, down and pop, a peel or a drive. And mm -hmm. and then we said the name of the person where the ball was going to go to because it was we were gifted. We had two lifters. Well, we had seven lifters and um, five jumpers. So we put a lifter on each end and the five jumpers in the middle and they just turned to where they were open. And that was it. So uh, I'm a firm believer in simplicity. Keep it very simple. Did you go with a no call system pretty much? No, it was it was named. So we would say to delivery. So let's just for. Uh, yep, yep, I, yep. I got you. Yes, silver is off the top. So it'd be silver, and then Steve, and that's it. And then Steve was in the air as soon as they said, you know, the the S of Steve. Uh, Luke, the importance of the thrower. We talk a lot about the lifter, the jumper, and everybody else, but we have to talk about the thrower. Um, Quite often, as you said, Johnny Wilkinson is outside 40 minutes before practice, 40 minutes after practice, kicking balls, practicing tackling, working on his footwork, working on his passing. And we'll find hookers who, you know, they did their 15, 20 lineouts at practice twice a week, and then they go to the game and expect to perform, and that doesn't happen, and they wonder why. Can you talk us through some of the things that you are introducing with our young hookers in America and some of our older hookers in America too? I know you're primarily working with younger players now, but uh, what kind of things are you doing there along those lines? You know, like we talked earlier, I think it's important to train like you play. So I recommend to our hookers, 
that while they're doing their sprints and their fitness in the gym or on the field or whatever, that they practice their throwing. Um, when I coach our hookers, I coach to their strengths. Um, you know, the World Rugby uh, outside the U.S. promotes two-footed on the line straight throw where we grew up throwing footballs, basketball, you know, all, all that. So uh, I, I, you know, I, I try to coach their strength. So stutter, stuttered, uh, sorry, uh, stutter steps, you know, where, I mean, staggered feet, how, how, uh, how we throw our football. So promote that. Um, but the biggest thing is train like you play. I've seen um, a lot of players in the uh, elite realm that we move in who, despite hours and days and weeks and years of practice, still can't get it right in the pressure cooker. What would you do with a player to say, without any names, who was a, a test player but still not a quality thrower and when it came to the clutch play, couldn't deliver? Well, you got to ask yourself, is there someone better? No, yeah, and that's the, th and that's the problem. There isn't anyone better. Yeah. Um, you, it's, it sounds like a mental game. You know, they can do it in the practice, but they can't do it in the, the, the pressure. So I, you train him with pressure. You know, add, add some background noise. Um, have someone in his face as he's practicing his throw. Um, tell him if he misses this one, he's going to have to do, you know, 50 burpees. You know, you just got to add pressure to his training. Mm. So when he comes to a game, it's easy. And what about the edge for a hooker who is a great thrower, but a poor scrummager and not that good around the park, but then you've got a, a, an ordinary thrower, but fantastic in the scrum around the park. That's when it becomes difficult. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it, too bad. It's a 15 man game and there's <laughs> all different parts other than scrummings and lineouts. You know, that those days are long gone where you could have a player just walk, walk around the pitch besides set pieces, you know? Um, and it, you just got to put it in their heads. You know, you're, you're more than a line-out thrower. You're more than a scrummager. You, know, you have work around the pitch to do, and if you don't do it, you're not going to play. And, gentlemen, you and both gentlemen, know you that how hard it is to find that complete, that complete number, two. number two. Well, finding a complete two, I mean, first things first, you got to get your scrum right and you got to get your line-out right. you got to be a tough guy. And then, you know, Essentially, if you can get your scrum and line out right, and you, and you're reasonably fit, generally you're going to be tough enough at least to uh, move piles, make tackles, mm. and 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 do the dirty work. Yeah, but if where... you if you throw if you can't if your hooker can't throw, then it's game over. Like your your line out is 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 full, falls a bit. So, you know, it's it's really uh, and I've I'm I sort of there's an element of frustration coming out from an Australian point of view because we've seen that a fair bit recently. And uh, it is a frustrating thing. Suggestions for getting someone else, the open side or someone else in the team to throw the ball in or the winger as it used to be in the old day. Old day. So it's, it's such a critical part. It's, 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 it's unbelievably important. Well, the expectations, on, the expectations on a hooker are very difficult because you're making expectations of 90 to 95% ball on these guys, which is, you know, 9 out of 10 or 19 out of 20. When, in fact, if you look at basketball, where players are shooting a free throw from mm. five, you know, essentially 15 feet away into a hoop 
if you're shooting at 75%, you're doing well. If you're shooting above 80, you're doing great. If you're shooting above 90, you're Larry Bird. And <laughs> not only that, we're asking guys to throw a screwy looking ball that's a little big for their hands in the wet weather, in the wind, while they're very tired, into people where that call is made and they have to release and it's a throw and go at a lot of times. Sometimes it's a throw jump. Other times it's a jump throw. But um, it's not not easy. These guys are under a severe bit of what the the expectations are very high. And and sometimes the expectations are that you're going to win 100% of your ball. When in fact, you know, if you take the expectations of a basketball player and you see you got to work on it, you work on it, you work on it. But, ha- you know, you, when you have these unrealistic expectations, it, you don't give a player something to build from. You build from here and you build higher and you build higher. You start your expectation at, at the end game. You have to start your expectation lower. And build, like I always say to my players, especially when we're starting out in the season, I tell the jumpers and, 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 the, and the guy, you know, making the line out decisions. Go to the open spot. The throw will come. That timing is going to come. Yeah. But you, it, first things first, get yourself open, make it easier, and then eventually we're going to – all that timing is going to come. You know, you got to get that right, and then the timing comes. What happens is you, if that timing doesn't come right train. away, what happens is that timing doesn't come right away. You abandon what is correct in the lineout, and then you go to throwing the two every time, and you give the hooker a complex about going deep in the lineout. When in fact, you just have to be patient with it and allow it to develop, and it will. And it doesn't take much time, but it will develop. It's just you got to be oh, patient. I couldn't disagree Everybody's- more, Bruce. It doesn't always develop, and I see it all the time. I see it in international level uh, where a hooker who's been given years of front row first choice and he doesn't kick on. And it's, it's, it's when those clutch plays uh, are held in a game that let down sides and you see the opposition doing it. I mean... I think, Luke, what you do and, and the American, um, the American uh, tendencies to have all these throwing skills is a, is a great starting point for that position. I, I agree with you. It's, it's, you know, and, it's, and it's about playing the strengths. And you know, to go back to uh, what you said, Bruce, about it is a very difficult position. It is. It's the hardest position on the field to play. You know, you're expected to scrum and hit 50 rucks and run the ball and do this and that and then come and do a very fine skill, throw the ball in with pressure to one of your teammates. You know, and how do they get to there? They train, you know, by training with your team. The timing will come as long as you give the time to train. But what if it doesn't come? Well, then you got a selection issue. That's right. That's right. And then what if your next selection is not right? (laughs) <laughs> and well, I'm telling it's you, a matter, it happens. It's a matter of, of Juro, it happens, but it happens at every single level in, in every single sport that, you know, you're going to have to deal with the fact that somebody e- either you're going to have to figure out a way to make it work. That's what the coach's job is. Exactly. So that, you know, then what you don't are, want is for so bring, that. So well, you bring your wing in and you yeah. have your wing throw and then you have eight men in your line out, you know, uh, add, add the hooker and there's a lifter, you know. Just, you know, the most important thing is the ball. Absolutely. Now, Bruce, I'm not making this up. This, I've been in coaches' meetings at the elitist, the highest level in the game in Australia where they've thrown their hands in the air saying, we've got a bloke who can't throw. He should be well, in the team. But, but there's no other option because the next guy who could be a great thrower is a passenger around the park. 
And as well, Luke said, you can't meander around the paddock anymore and just do one job. How, well, how many not, how many lineouts are there in the game? What uh, you you, you have get about, about fifteen or sixteen that are yours. Yeah. And, and, how and, many and, breakdowns are there in a game that you need 100. someone there to rough? There you go. Yeah. So what's the most important thing? Well, you have to give yeah. and take, don't you? Well, you got to have your primary phase, and in order to be able to, in order to be, and and Jiro, I understand what you're saying, mm. but what a lot of people don't understand is that, whereas coaching backs is more difficult, in, in terms of there's a lot more variables involved, coaching forwards takes more time to get those eight people functioning as a unit. Oh, absolutely. And 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 yeah. and, and but a lot of times coaches don't give the appropriate amount of time to develop these things. Mm. And, and that's where the breakdown comes. The first thing's first. You have to have a good scrum. You have to have a good line out. You have to have a good defense. And you have to be solid in your restarts. You have to get those right in order to play the rest of the game. So you have to appropriate an amount of time to allow these players to – how many times do you see teams go into practice and they don't spend time on scrums and lineouts and say, oh, that's just a restart? Well, guess what? That restart is what's causing you to lose games. Well, that happened in and, 05. Uh, Eddie, decide, Eddie Jones had decided that uh, pretty much to abandon the, the scrum, and uh, you saw the game at Twickenham, uh, where, where Sheridan was part of that, uh, Luke, and destroyed Australia. And they've recovered, yeah. but it was a lot of work in the meantime. And, yeah. and, but those, those are things. And, and, and you know, like, Joe, like I say, I think that it comes down from making a decision and just being calm with your hooker. Also, one of the things, like Cy Hardy, he's been coaching specialist throwers and he's been coaching throwers in England for more than a decade now. He's been doing it for 12 years and 13 years. So he has every hooker from the 16s all the way up to the senior men. He goes to every single club and sees every single hooker that he thinks is valuable and spends time with them on throwing for an hour session once a week, every single guy. And then he goes to the senior men's national team and works with the senior men for the week when they're, when they're in session. And then he coaches the Saxons. And then when he was the line-out coach in England, he did the exact same thing. And that's how you get good at it. You get good at it by practicing. Like Jason Williams, the, the guy who just got convicted, DWI, murdered, shot a guy in his house who was a basketball player, was he was a, uh, had a, a, a terrible trouble foul shooting and he went to St. John's University and he was going to hypnotists and all kinds of stuff and Chris Mullen went to St. John's too and he talked to him about it and Mullen said how about this how about go outside and shoot 10,000 foul shots and log how you're doing and he goes Mm -hmm. at the end of it you're going to be a better foul shooter and guess what he shot 75% from the line Mm -hmm. a guy who normally shot 50 and now Luke you you could appreciate that if you want to get good at it, you got to do it. And what would you suggest to a guy who's a hooker, who's lonely, he's by himself, he doesn't have anyone to practice with? What would you do to, you know, what would you suggest to a guy to become a better thrower? How would you suggest that he go out and practice by himself to work on it? It's a lonely thing, but you got to get good at it. There is no excuse for not being good at it, in, in my book. And, oh, you know, no. you got to no. work with guys on it. And, you know, I mean, I know what I suggest to my guys. I'm just seeing, Luke, what, 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 do you, what have you been suggesting to players to get good at throwing? Oh, just, just what we talked about before, you know, play to your strengths. 
Uh, well, to start, they have a checklist. They get to that line to calm themselves. They have a checklist. So um, feet, hands, head, shoulders, ball behind head. You know, maybe it's that simple. You know, and everybody will have a different one. Uh, they get there and they throw. That's it, you know. And to get to that point, they have got to train. You know, like we said before, train like you play. So as they're in the gym, you know, train against the wall in the gym. Uh, when they're out doing their sprints, do some throws in between each sprint. There's a yeah, big difference well, between they... yeah. There's a big difference difference between that and just throwing a thousand balls, because it's well, it, it, it there is because that's when that's when you judge Bruce. When you it's not when you're out there throwing a thousand balls to no one who, who no one cares about. It's when you get out there in front of the crowd, and when the pressure is on. And uh, all right, I'm gonna I'll give you what I give to my guys. Basically, what I have them do is I have them go to a goalpost, okay? And they have a jumper, go to a goalpost. You have a spot on a goalpost, essentially where, where you're going to throw the ball. It's within, you know, it's within a foot, you know, a foot, and, you know. But, and I make a mark. We, they make a mark or there's a little nick on the goalpost or something that they throw to, okay? Then they may do five sprints to the 22 and back and throw again. Now, if you have one ball and you're throwing, if you hit it accurately – where that ball hits square on the point, it bounces back to you. If you miss, you got to go get it. And that's the frustrating pressure part of it. You got to go get it. So you go, and then you eventually start to throw where the ball doesn't tail off to the side. What happens to most throwers is if you're a left-handed thrower, right-handed thrower, the ball will, the point of the ball will tend to flow to the right as you release it, if you're a right-handed thrower, it'll go to the left as you release it if you're a left-handed thrower. What you want it to do is come out square so that it goes right down the line of touch and doesn't veer off in any direction. And then you release it with both hands snapping at the exact same time, your thumb of your weak finger and your index finger of your, of your, of your power hand kind of release the ball at the exact same time. That'll send the ball tailing – that'll send the ball straight ahead. And if you hit, if you square yourself up on the target, if your nose is pointed at the target, your chin's up, your chest is out, your hands are back, your elbow's tight, boom, it goes and then it bounces back to you. And as you get better at it, it bounces back to you and it bounces back to you more and more often. And what that does is gives you confidence that when you throw, you're throwing well. Also, you're throwing to about a four to six inch spot on a goalpost. So you have the whole width of the line out. So your errors become smaller and smaller. As your errors become smaller and smaller, you're also going to find that when you slip a throw and make a mistake, that it's still going to hit the target. And you have to put yourself under pressure in these ways. It is lonely. You do have to go out in the rain, just like marathoners say. I train in the rain because the marathon might be in the rain. I train when I'm sick because I may have to run the marathon when I'm sick. Well, you may have to play when you're sick. You may have to play in the rain. You may have to play in the wind. But you got to go out and you have to do the skill. And you ha in order to get the confidence – which is what everyone's the head game, in order to get the confidence to be able to do it right, you have to go out and put yourself under that kind of pressure, and you have to go out and put yourself under a pressure of accuracy. And that's the thing that I think is lacking. People don't go out and necessarily put themselves under having the pressure of performing a skill accurately. And it doesn't take that much to get it right. I, I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's something that can be... Now, you can add in core stability. There's a whole lot of things that go into throwing a throwing a rugby ball that, you know, when, when you go into an elite level, it's, it's more and more, but you need to get that basic down. And, and a lot of people don't have that basic down. They can't yeah, hit a goalpost. 
And, agree with you, you know, totally. if you can't hit a goalpost from 15 yards away in your sleep, then you're not a hooker, and you're certainly not an international hooker. Luke, yeah. is there an example of a player that you've done something similar with and, and got them to go from the yips in, 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 a, in a golfing type uh, line out terms to, to being the pretty finished product? Um, I've not seen any names or, or anything, but yes, definitely. You know, and it's just because they'd never trained before. They didn't realize how to train. And, and it doesn't take long, especially if they're an athlete. You know, they'll pick it up very, very quickly. Now, just, just to change something that Bruce had said, instead of throwing at a point on the goalposts, throw down the goalpost. Because how many times have you seen that throw go through the front of the line out straight and then at the tail end kind of feather off to the left or the right? Mm. Um, that's why you want and to have them throw it down the post. From the, from the start of the post to the end, it should stay straight. And, and that was what I was saying on the release. When you release a ball, in, in general, one of the reasons that like a quarterback like Joe Montana throws or John Elway throws or they don't throw anymore, Peyton Manning, you'll see on their release, <laughs> they snap their hand out and they snap their yeah. palm so it's facing away from them. What that does is that straightens the ball out. Because yeah. if they just threw it, and, and just threw it with their fingers pointing or their palm pacing downward, the point of the ball would be facing the right-hand side for a right-handed thrower. And then what happens is as that ball goes further down the line, it tails off into a not straight throw. So if you're going to be a one-handed thrower, you have to make sure that you snap it. It's very difficult to be a one-handed thrower in wet weather, and, and many hookers don't have the biggest hands in the world. So you, you kind of are going to have to be a two-handed thrower where you can't, and you don't you don't open your hand like a football you kind of hold it like like almost like a soccer ball and then you know you, you don't you don't make your thumb as big and wide and you whoop and then as i said on your power hand you release it the last point of contact is your index finger and on your on your guide hand the last point of contact is on your thumb and then you boom and you whoosh, and it just goes straight down the line and the ball releases every time the key to good throwing is to get a good release then you have to, you know, then, then you work on your toe. You want to get the throw straight. First things first. If it's not straight, it's a scrum to the other team. So you got to get your throw straight. Then you work on your accuracy. Then you, then you build further and further in on this, and that's how you do it. And you have to be very, very exacting on yourself as a player because most often you're not going to have a coach with you while you're doing this. You may have them there for a few sessions with you if you're lucky, but in most cases, you're not going to have a coach there, and you have to be able to self-coach. And Luke and I had just spoken recently. Uh, we, 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 there's been a document that's been created about um, different errors in line-out throwing and, and generally what the cause of those errors are. And, and I, I think you've taken a brief look at it, Luke, and uh, you know, it's, it's something that is – it's something that, you know, I, I happen to really, really um, get into it in, in a big, big, big way. I, I think that line-out throws are, are, are critical. And I think that it's okay. – I think that when, you know, you, you have to get that whole area right. And, 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 and we, we, we can make that document available for you that um, – and, and you'll understand that, say, like, if, you know, if, if you're dropping your chest, you're probably straightening your legs too early. If the ball's tailing off to the right, 
your left hand is off the ball too early. If it's tailing off down to the left, you probably, you got a little bit too much rotation in your chest and your chest is on the wrong line. You have to keep your body square. If the ball's overthrown, it's probably released with your hands pulling down and not along the line of the throw. If the ball wobbles, your hands probably aren't coming off at the same time. All right. If, if the ball wobbles, your hands may be too close to the back. If this happens for women a lot and their hands aren't large enough to control the ball. You know, the, but these are things that if you go through it, you start to learn yourself. And if you want to be a good thrower, that's what you have to do. And, and, and in order to have a good line out, you have to have your players in the line out have to make the correct decision every single time based on what will work against the given defense. And it is up to the thrower to hit the mark. And if you do that, that will eventually happen. You can't put the cart before the horse. You have to, those guys have to make good decisions. He has to have good technique. And that's the way you get an operating line out. And it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And if coaches give it time, you will develop a line out that operates very, very efficiently. That's just my feeling on it. You know, and, and you, you know, you may have to take your knocks in the preseason, but when the preseason is over and ever, and the money games are on, then it should work. Yes, and uh, I, I think that the decision making in the lineout is critical to having success in the lineout. The throw will come, and if they practice, their mentality will mean that they're not going to be, they're not going to lack the confidence. If you keep on going to the two ball because that's all the thrower can hit at this moment, then guess what? That's all you're going to have in your arsenal come game day. It's a tough business, and I guess what we've discussed today is just how hard it is, particularly for the hooker. But the decision makers as well, Luke. It's a, it's a tough job. Yeah, it is. It is. But uh, we've really enjoyed uh, having you on the show today. It's uh, stimulated some debate. Uh, Bruce, you, you said that that document. Jero, uh, we... what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give you a couple key points for everybody to concentrate on for throwers. Luke is going to have the document and he'll be able to send it out. First off, set up. You got to be square to the target. Okay. In in general, a two-handed throw is better than a one-handed throw only because of hand size and ability to control a ball. Rugby ball is bigger than a football. Your feet, your knees, and your elbows have to be pointed toward the target. Your hips and your chest have to be square to the target, and your weight has to be over the front foot. Now, Luke says that he has, he has guys um, stagger their feet, and, it, and you put your weight over your front foot if you're staggering your feet, and, and the reason you do that is you don't have the core stability and you're struggling for distance. If you have good core strength, you can keep both feet together. But in general, you probably have one foot forward at our levels here. In the action of throwing, you want to have a smooth, rhythmic movement. It's just whoosh, whoosh. You want to keep your hands on the ball as long as possible. You want to throw your hands at the target, especially your non-dominant hand. You have to keep your hands up, too and point at the target. You don't want to throw and just whip your hands down. As you release, you point at the target. You pull with your abs. That's how come you need core strength. The, the strength comes from your abs. And then on the release, you extend your arms and turn your palms outward. So you're snapping your elbow, just like Peyton Manning does. You're doing it with two hands. And then you feel the ball come off, come off the fingers of the right hand and the thumb of the left hand. That's for right-handed throwers. And you ensure that your weight finishes on your toes and not your heels. And then there's other, there's other things. Luke will have that. He'll post it. He'll have it available. If anybody needs it, you can email me at bruce at mcclainny.com. I'll send it to you gladly. And there's also a ton of different uh, drills that you can do as far as throws. I gave the lonely drill. 
There's things where you can do holding a broomstick or a lollipop that people use. There's all kinds of different things. But the bottom line is you got to get your release right. You have to get your setup right. And then you throw the ball and it's a rhythmic movement. And the only way it becomes rhythmic is through training. All right. Uh, thanks for that, Bruce. Uh, Luke, uh, Luke Rose, thanks for joining us. Uh, quickly, what are you up to at the moment? Keeping I'm just heading out to Oregon. Getting ready to head to Oregon here in the, uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, any rugby planned? Um, no, no um, just uh, doing a clinic out there, a line out clinic. Fantastic. Um, and of course, you'll be at Vegas. You got to be there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, right. Just to uh, reiterate uh, about Bruce, about sending those in, that information to me, you can get a hold of me at lgross at usarugby.org. And uh, I can forward that on to you also. Fantastic. Uh, that'll be great. And, uh, you know, if you, if you want to send it through, we can just have it available as a download link, download link if that's okay. Um, yeah, that's great. That'll yep. make it really easy for people in the story. All right, Luke okay. Rose, uh, look, really fascinating to talk to you. The line-out is such a, an incredible beast. There's so many elements to it, and the fact that you've got to be so precise in a game of thuggery is just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Luke. Thank you. There he is, Luke Gross. Great guest, Bruce. Thanks for your time as always, mate. Thanks, buddy. And uh, I know you got some big news you got to work on in Sydney. And we will see you next week with Scott Lawrence talking age grade rugby, age grade development, and also the new video analysis system. Not, it's not an analysis system, it's more of a video coaching tool that um, coaches are going to be able to use to, when, when you suggest your players to be playing in the to be coached by Luke and Scott and, and, and Bill LeClaire at the national level that these guys, they're, they're going to give you the drills and things that you, that you need to have your players up to speed on. So it'll be great to be able to talk to Scott and, and build on our conversation that we had today with Luke. Thanks a lot, Luke. We really appreciate you being here. Thank and, you. And uh, don't forget our new sponsor and don't forget Vegas. You've got to be there. Be Vegas, you got to be there and scrumbot.com. If you want to make some money for your club and you want to have an online store set up for you that you don't have to do any work, scrumbot.com is the way to go. And that is Rugger Matrix USA Episode 8 for 2010. We'll speak to you next week.